0: The whole debate in Swan Falls was who was going to be the water master for the river. People want certainty with regard to water, but the only certainty you can have is a process. Inevitably, it's a dynamic system that's going to change, and so you've got to adapt to those changes. Oftentimes, with water issues, you don't deal with them until you have a crisis. And, uh, you know, it's always been my philosophy don't let a good crisis go to waste. You know, try to solve uh, problems in the future. And I think that's what we did. My name is Clive Strong. I was formerly a Deputy Attorney General for the Office of the Idaho Attorney General. Served as the Chief of the Natural Resource Division uh, for 34 years.
1: Water was at the center of the debate over establishing permanent protection for the newly expanded Snake River Birds of Prey natural area. When Cecil Andrus performed his secretarial withdrawal of the expanded Birds of Prey area, many people were angry because they believed that they had lost their opportunity to develop that land for agriculture. But there was a battle brewing over water rights that would soon come to a head, pushing these hopes to the wayside. The epicenter of this fight was the Swan Falls Dam,
2: if you're going to make electricity with falling water, it's best to go to a place where water is already falling. Uh, and so that's why we're here at Swan Falls. It was funded by the, the, the mines in the Silver City area. It's the result of four different periods of construction between, like us say, 1901 and 1913. My name is Ty Korn. I'm an archaeologist
1: for Idaho Power. The Swan Falls Dam is deep within the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA, where the prairie falcon territories are tightly packed in along the canyon walls. You're listening to Common Land, a new podcast series produced by the Wildlands Collective and Radio Boise with support from the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. I'm your host, Matt Podolski. Common Land tells the creation stories behind protected areas, and in Season 1, we are telling the story of a canyon in southwest Idaho with 1,000-foot sheer basalt cliffs and the most dense nesting populations of birds of prey anywhere on the continent. I'm talking about the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, a true raptor haven. In the fall of 1982,
0: Jim Jones had been elected attorney general, and he hired me. uh, I was one of his first hires in the administration. I graduated from uh, law school in 77, so I was very early in my career.
1: Just weeks after that November 1982 election, before newly elected attorney general Jim Jones had actually taken office, a decision was handed down in an extremely controversial case at the Idaho Supreme Court.
0: The Idaho Supreme Court issued a decision um, called Idaho Power Company versus State of Idaho, in which reversed District Court Judge Walters' decision, Jess Walters' decision.
1: Idaho Power Company versus the State of Idaho was decided in favor of Idaho Power, restoring the utility company's right to a streamflow of 8,400 cubic feet per second, or CFS, for hydropower generation at Swan Falls Dam along the Snake River.
0: And that's when I entered is that at that point in time, he uh, Attorney General Jones hired me and uh, put me in lead of trying to deal with that issue.
1: 8,400 CFS was the stream flow that would allow the dam to generate hydropower at its maximum capacity, but the Snake River often didn't have that much water when it reached Swan Falls. It had experienced low flows that dropped down to 4,500 CFS. So when the Idaho Supreme Court declared that Idaho Power Company had the right to 8,400 CFS at Swan Falls Dam, they were also saying that upstream water users would have to relinquish their water rights in favor of the utility company the water rights of these upstream users had been subordinated by Idaho power. This was the situation that newly elected Attorney General Jim Jones and his first hire, Clive Strong, had to deal with on day one when they took office at the beginning of 1983.
0: I was a lead litigator, so my job was to try to figure out how we could recover from the decision the Supreme Court had issued. And to walk into the middle of that battle was quite (laughs) eye-opening, let's just put it that way. Uh, it, was, um, it was an intense, a very intense period of, in my career where I spent time on that issue.
1: The Swan Falls controversy arose just two years after Cecil Andrus's secretarial withdrawal dramatically expanded the size of the Snake River Birds of Prey natural area. The secretarial withdrawal was controversial because it protected an area that many hoped to develop for irrigated agriculture, using high-lift pumping to transport water from the Snake River. But the 1982 Idaho Supreme Court case brought into question the feasibility of this type of agricultural development. Around this time, raptor biologist Mike Coker got
3: the, the dubious distinction of taking out uh, James McClure.
1: McClure was a senator representing Idaho at the time. He had voiced strong opposition to Cecil Andrus's secretarial withdrawal of the Snake River Birds of Prey area.
3: We were to take the chief of the Boise staff from McClure's office here in, in Boise, out to the Birds of Prey area and talk about, you know, this, this uh, the, the, why the area was so unique, why it's needed to be preserved and everything like that. And I can remember that day Vividly, because I, both Mark and I rolled up our sleeves and I guess we had, you know, they, none of the heroes wanted to go out, and, so they sent the, the minions out to do battle. We had the map setting up there that showed the withdrawal area and we were going to be able to, to do due diligence in terms of explaining why it's such a big area and why the Prairie Falcons need it and everything like that. He looked at the map and he said, Four words, there is no water. That was it. End of story. That put the Kibashi on any kind of high lift pumping going up to the north of the canyon. And that was it. I mean, those simple words and it was
1: done. This interaction with Senator McClure's staffer made Cokert aware for the first time how significant the controversy over water rights at Swan Falls Dam was to the effort to permanently protect the Snake River Burza prey area. Senator McClure passed away in 2011, but here's what he had to say about the issue in the year 2000.
3: It was, uh, it was the irrigation interests primarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in those, those years, there was very close links to Idaho power yep. because of power production. Something that only changed with the Swan Falls decision. when for the first time, Idaho power was forced to recognize that their, their rights to the water were in conflict with the potential consumptive use of water.
0: It further curtailed the opportunity for future development. Now, what we've done is we've shifted from the idea of developing back to trying to sustain the base that we have today.
1: Although the 1982 Supreme Court decision effectively ended the push for agricultural development in the Snake River Birds of Prey area, the case called attention to a statewide water rights issue that had been ongoing for almost a century.
0: In order to understand Swan Falls controversy, you have to go clear back to statehood. When they were developing the Constitution for the State of Idaho, one provision that was in, inserted in the Constitution was Article 15, which deals, deals with water rights. And um, the state adopted what's called the Prior Appropriation Doctrine.
1: The Prior Appropriation Doctrine was created in the 1850s in Gold Rush era California. It assigns water rights on a first-come, 1st first serve basis to those who develop a use for the water that is deemed as beneficial, with beneficial uses being defined as agricultural, industrial, or household water use
0: hydropower was beginning to become uh, a viable option. And the concern was that if hydropower water rights were able to develop a water right uh, under the prior appropriation doctrine, um, they would take and control the entirety of the river.
1: Despite these concerns expressed at Idaho's constitutional convention, the prior appropriations doctrine remained in the document. Sure enough, just 11 years later, construction began on the Snake River's first dam. Swan Falls.
2: Well, and so right now we are actually standing in the 1907 powerhouse, so this would would have been the first addition to the original powerhouse.
1: That's the voice of Ty Korn, historian and archaeologist for the Idaho Power Company.
2: And even though it's kind of a, a giant concrete echoey, you know, chamber right now, uh, originally there were four units across the floor. And if you look at the at the gray painted uh, old generation floor here you can kind of see these circular outlines where uh, where a generator used to sit. and so if there was a generator here that means that there was a turbine straight down from it they started in 1900 and it was finished in 1901 and back then the road was you know just a deep set of wagon ruts I mean, it was an all-day affair I mean we whisked out here actually in an electric car in you know, 40 minutes, but back then it was an all-day affair to just make a one-way journey out here, especially if you were on a, a, a wagon with, you know, a, a four-ton turbine runner on the back of it being pulled by eight horses.
1: Although Swan Falls Dam was built to provide electricity to the mines of Silver City. The need for electricity
2: to to fuel the mining was going down. The need for electricity everywhere else was just going off the chart, so... Um, yeah, the mines went out of business at the same time that this thing was expanding and you know, basically doubling its its production. In, in 1901, uh, there were many competing smaller power companies I- across Southern Idaho. They were underselling each other on power, um, and because they were all separate entities, they had separate infrastructure. So there would often be, you know, four or five different power lines coming into the same area. So there was a lot of redundant uh, capital costs and that with the kind of the cutthroat rate wars they were going at each other with, it, it was just a recipe for disaster. And eventually they all kind of imploded Kind of the whole system was purchased by uh, capital from, from back East and swept into Idaho Power in 1916. So it was kind of you know the phoenix uh, arising from the, the ashes of all these companies that managed to kind of implode.
1: The collapse of this network of competing power companies in 1916 gave birth to Idaho Power, the private utility company that now serves over 560,000 customers throughout southern Idaho and southeastern Oregon. By the time that Idaho Power was created in 1916, five additional dams had been built on the Snake River. The concerns about hydropower water rights taking control of the Snake River via the prior appropriation doctrine that had been expressed in Idaho's Constitutional Convention a few decades previous were beginning to come to fruition, prompting the development of a new plan for managing water rights in southwest Idaho.
0: There was a study done in 1920, a comprehensive plan, essentially, for the upper Snake River Basin. And what that plan called for was to basically develop all of the water from what's called Milner Dam, which is just outside of Twin Falls.
1: Milner Dam is more than 150 miles upriver from the Swan Falls Dam. This 1920 water development plan proposed using the entirety of the water from the Snake River collected at Milner Dam to be diverted for agricultural use
0: divert all of the water out of the Snake River and essentially reduce the river to zero flow. Uh, That water would be diverted across the plain. A large part of that water uh, then seeps back into the aquifer, increasing the spring flows. So essentially what we did is we re-diverted the Snake River from the main channel, running it through the aquifer, increasing the spring flows.
1: About 50 miles downstream from Milner Dam, where the stream flow of the Snake River was to be reduced to zero, is an area called Thousand Springs which sits at the terminus of a massive underground aquifer that stretches across the Snake River Plain.
0: What we were doing before uh, 1950 was that basically we were doing gravity irrigation, and so you diverted large amounts of water across the eastern Snake Plain aquifer, and we increased the uh, flow in the aquifer, or the ground low water level in the aquifer, by 60 feet across an 11,000-square-mile area. That's the equivalent of Lake Erie which then increased the flows at 1,000 springs from about 4,200 CFS to almost 6,000, or over 6,000 CFS.
1: When agricultural fields in the Snake River Plain were flooded with water diverted from Milner Dam, that water was recharging the aquifer and therefore increasing the spring flow 50 miles downriver from Milner. So even if the stream flow was reduced to zero at Milner Dam, water was pouring back into the river system at Thousand Springs at a level that allowed for some power generation further downriver at Swan Falls Dam.
0: Essentially what the report did was said, we're going to divide the river, make a two-river policy. Uh, Upper Snake River is going to be fully developed. The company will rely on uh, the spring flows because at that time we didn't have the ability to uh, with high-lift pumping to take the water out. So the thought was we'll develop most of our hydropower in this reach below Milner and do all of the agricultural development above Milner. And it was nobody foresaw until 1950 this advent of high-lift pumping or, uh, or cap- capacity to do high-lift pumping out of the aquifer. And once that happened, it undermined the central principle of that plan that had been developed back in 1920 and pumping out of the aquifer caused the flows in the uh, Snake River to decrease at at the Thousand Springs area and, uh, and consequently, at Swan Falls as well. And so those declining flows were really what precipitated the conflict at Swan Falls. As as those flows declined, there was less opportunity for generation of power.
1: As high-lift pumping was beginning to reverse the recharge that the Snake River Plains aquifer had seen from previous decades of flood irrigation, Another water rights debate was brewing downstream of the Swan Falls Dam at Hell's Canyon.
0: The big dam building era began really in the 40s and uh, through the 50s. Uh, We had the Hell's Canyon controversy that occurred.
2: Idaho Power was just concluding a big fight over who would be allowed to develop the hydropower resources of Hell's Canyon. Uh, the federal government wanted to build like a, a single tall dam in Hell's Canyon, and Idaho Power wanted to add a series of three dams to, to uh, utilize the hydropower uh, capabilities there.
1: Leonard Jordan, a Republican, was elected governor of Idaho in 1950,
0: and he... Was uh, asked to support Idaho Power Company's construction of the hills. Uh, its Hell's Canyon proposal. And they said, if we are granted the right to construct um, the three smaller Hell's Canyon projects, which were Hell's Canyon, Oxbow, and Brownlee, that they promised uh, the state and irrigators that they would never assert their rights against upstream development. And that that's really a central part of uh, Swan Falls controversy, because there was this belief that the company had agreed to that. In fact, Senator Jordan, or Governor Jordan at the time, made that a condition of his support for Idaho Power Company's project as the company's commitment to the state that they would never, the company would never assert its rights against upstream development.
1: During the Swan Falls controversy, however, Idaho Power rejected the idea that this agreement between the company and Governor Jordan had taken place. Ty Korn, archaeologist and historian for Idaho Power, shares his perspective.
2: Um, I just know it was a, a long uh, protracted fight with you know different entities lining up uh, mm-hmm. behind different sides and uh, and Idaho power was eventually granted the right to you know develop the the projects in Hell's Canyon mm-hmm. so um, I mean different political figures lined up in different places and some of them had a long history with Idaho and some of them didn't
0: Unfortunately, it wasn't documented the way it should have been.
1: This failure to document the agreement over water rights at Swan Falls made between Idaho Power and Governor Jordan in the early 1950s would create the opportunity for the lawsuit that led to the Idaho Supreme Court case, Idaho Power versus the state of Idaho, in the fall of 1982.
0: Immediately after the Supreme Court decision, Jim Jones had been elected attorney general Jim, uh, at the time he was Attorney General, he had been a staffer for Senator Lynn Jordan. So Jordan left the governor's office and went back to the Senate. And um, Attorney General Jim Jones was steeped in uh, Jordan's belief that the Snake River is a working river and should be made available for economic development. And he saw the companies, uh, the decision from the Supreme Court, and the companies backing away from. The traditional understanding that its water rights were subordinated as a breach of an agreement, a verbal agreement that had been reached between Governor Jordan and the company. And um, so he um, took it upon himself to uh, move that battle forward.
1: The state of Idaho began waging a legislative war with the Idaho Power Company. Who would be the water master of the Snake River?
0: During the 1983 session, um, there had been efforts to try to subordinate uh, legislatively to subordinate the water rights, and the company fought against that, and they fought to a standstill. And after the 83 session, then several of the legislators that had supported Idaho Power Company became, were targeted uh, for defeat and actually lost their positions in the legislature because of the position they'd taken on Swan Falls. We go into the 84 session, and the battle is even more intense. Uh, we're drafting subordination bills as fast as Idaho Power Company is killing the subordination bills. And um, it was really a stalemate between the, the company and the state. And that's when Governor Evans approached the um, Uh, then CEO Jim Bruce and said listen we've got to find a better solution that this isn't uh, going to work from the state standpoint we can't have the company shutting down the entirety of the economy but on the other hand we've got to find a solution that doesn't keep us at at odds and uh, that's where the Swan Falls agreement uh, developed out of that conversation.
1: In the midst of this legal and legislative battle between the state of Idaho and Idaho Power Company, Mike Cokert and Karen Steenhoff were seeking funding to continue their raptor research down in the Snake River Canyon. We partnered with industry. We had the cooperative project on the new transmission line that had just gone in, and we also had a partnership with Idaho Power, who was reconstructing the Swan Falls Dam. So not only did this battle between Idaho Power and the state of Idaho bring an end to the controversy over water rights in the newly expanded Snake River Birds of Prey Natural Area, but Idaho Power and other utility companies were providing much of the funding that allowed raptor monitoring efforts to continue throughout the 1980s.
3: During the 80s, we partnered with, with the utilities, but we're still able to continue the monitoring work.
1: And it wasn't just Mike Kokert and Karen Steenhoff who were collaborating with utility companies. Morley Nelson had actually started working with the Idaho Power Company in the early 1970s to design power poles that wouldn't electrocute birds of prey, as he explains in the 1981 film, Silver Wires, Golden Wings.
3: Now the wires on a line like this are obviously so close that a big eagle can touch two wires at once. In some way, we've got to figure out either pull the lines up or insulate one of the lines or make some correction there that's going to uh, prevent uh,
1: birds from being hurt. Morley worked closely with Idaho Power and other western utility companies throughout the 1970s to develop solutions to the electrocution issue. And by the early 1980s, utilities biologist Al Anson declared that We've not only solved the electrocution problem on existing distribution lines, We know how to construct lines now to prevent problems. Our nesting platforms are undoubtedly going to extend the range of several species of birds worldwide. Silver Wires, Golden Wings, the film documenting this success story, was used as an educational tool throughout the early 1980s. And in 1985, the Public Relations Society of America presented Morley with the More Than a Million Award, meaning that the film had been seen by over a million people. Quite an achievement, considering it was screened only at private events for utility companies and community groups.
3: What can we learn from a legal? Silence speaks louder than words. symbol of strength and freedom.
1: Just a few months before Morley and his sons received this prestigious award for their film, the Idaho Power Company had finally agreed to sit down with state government leaders with the intention of working towards a compromise on water rights at Swan Falls Dam.
0: And so what really prompted the settlement was we looked at what the existing development was in the uh, Snake River at that point in time and the low flow that had been experienced um, prior to the settlement was uh, 4, 000, about 4,520 CFS. Looking at that, we said, okay, uh, the state water plan called for development of the Snake River at Swan Falls down to 3,300 CFS. So the whole, most the state could have won was to get the right to develop down to 3,300 CFS. Well, if you do the math, uh, 4,500 CFS, 3,300 CFS, 1,200 is the difference. Uh, so the compromise was, well, let's uh, st- establish the uh, minimum flow now at 3,900 CFS in the summer. And that would allow for some future development, which uh, the state needed. Uh, there was a real strong demand to do more development on the Eastern State Plain Aquifer, and it gave the company some protection on a base flow. That's how simple it was. <music>
1: Although the reasoning behind establishing this minimum flow rate was quite simple, the legal settlement between the state and Idaho power still had a number of hurdles to overcome.
0: Federal Power Commission, uh, FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, was refusing to recognize the subordination, so we had to introduce legislation into Congress to force the uh, FERC to recognize the agreement. and. Um, we were only able to get that through uh, over the opposition of the Department of Interior with an agreement to conduct a study to see what the impacts of the um, future development under the Swan Falls Agreement would be on the uh, flow in the river reach below Swan Falls Dam.
1: In order to monitor these impacts, Strong needed to find a way to
0: manage the surface and groundwater conjunctively because historically. We have always treated groundwater and separate water and uh, surface water as separate. It's because you you can't see below the surface, you don't know what's there, we didn't have the technology to regulate it. They're intertwined in a way that you can't afford. I mean the hydraulic connection between the two is essential to managing the river. And so our objective and once we got the adjudication of the water rights was the, to then do this conjunctive administration of surface and groundwater.
1: Idaho's 1920 water management plan for the Snake River had actually already established this connection between surface water and groundwater, but the 1984 Swan Falls settlement aimed to reset the baseline flow.
0: Everything above Milner, uh, the entire flow can be developed down to zero. Well, if you do that, how do you maintain a 3900 CFS flow at Swan Falls Dam? You have to have enough water coming out of the springs in order to sustain that 3,900 CFS in the summer months. So we needed to be able to manage the resource, but you can't manage what you can't measure. So that was the purpose of the Snake River Basin Adjudication was to get a comprehensive list of all water rights in the basin so that we would have the, the ability to figure out what our baseline is and then what's available for development above that. The River Basin Adjudication is the only uh, statewide adjudication that's been completed. It's, those are just very difficult cases to complete because you're going back and you're documenting what the history has been. Um, there are winners and losers when you start doing that documentation, so you get into fights. And we had some big fights in the Sacred Basin Adjudication as well. And then the cost of those uh, most people don't recognize that to complete the Snake River Basin adjudication was uh, for the state alone, this is not the private sector, but for the state alone was over ninety two million dollars. But in terms of how to conduct a, a general adjudication Idaho has become the model. In fact when we did the closing ceremonies in 2014 we had representatives from California coming up and saying well how did you do this?
1: This envy from other states over Idaho's successful adjudication process was hard won. One of the most contentious issues that emerged during this process was determining how to appropriate new water rights.
0: While we agreed to a 3900 CFS uh, flow at Swan Falls, the aspect of the agreement that became most difficult to implement was, okay, if you've got water to develop, how are you going to do that? And what the Swan Falls agreement called for is that the water between uh, for the Swan Falls Dam. Uh, remember, it has an 8,400 CFS water right, and we have a minimum flow now of 3,900 CFS, so the amount of water between that is water that was considered trust water. Uh, anybody with a water right prior to 1984 well, received the benefit of full subordination. Anybody that developed a water right after the Swan Falls Agreement got what was called a trust water right, and a trust water right was you could exercise that right so long as it didn't impede the 3,900 CFS flow. And so there were criteria put in place for that development, Um, and that's um, Idaho Code Section 42203C.
1: The creation of these trust water rights resolved one of the central disputes between the Idaho Power Company and the state of Idaho. It created a situation under which new water rights would be available for future development. These trust water rights would only be available if they could be removed from the river system without reducing the river flow below the established minimum flow rate of 3,900 CFS in the summer and 5,600 CFS in the winter.
0: The interesting aspect of this is if you look at the Swan Falls Agreement, there's only one paragraph, paragraph four, that even makes mention of a trust. So the whole concept of how this trust was going to work had never been sorted out.
1: This would end up becoming a key issue several decades down the road.
0: We had a, a second fight. We actually fought Swan Falls twice. Once when, <laughs> Once we got to the settlement in 1985, and then the second one was in 2006 when we were trying to decree the water rights and the company had filed its water rights in the Snake River Basin adjudication without acknowledging that those rights were subordinated to uh, uh, this future development that was occurring, uh, the trust water rights. So um, as that was happening uh, Attorney General Wasden um, we tried to talk to the company to convince them to to recognize the agreement as it had been uh, written. They wouldn't do that, so he filed an application with the Department of Water Resources for a transfer of the company's water rights above 3,900 CFS, and all, all heck broke loose. But once we got uh, Judge Melanson's decision saying that the company had, in fact, agreed to subordinate Uh, its water rights above uh, 3,900 CFS to future development. That then precipitated the second round of uh, settlement discussions, and I think it's uh, the 2009 uh, Snake River Water Rights Reaffirmation Agreement in which we agreed uh, that the company's water rights would be held by the state. So the state holds these hydropower water rights in trust for the company, and. the citizens of state, and we have the ability through the trust to impose these additional conditions on the development of the water right. Now. What we hopefully have put in place is a floor, you know, that we've resolved the past conflicts so that we're not fighting about what was intended, but rather what do we want in terms of our future management options. We've got to look at it as a common, we've got to look at it as a shared resource and we've got to think about it in an enlightened self-interest way. I mean, we have a lot of demands for this resource. Idaho is fortunate that we have a good water supply. It's a a management issue here, whereas it's a crisis issue in some other places because you just don't have a water supply to replace it.
1: It is indeed important for those of us who live in southwest Idaho to recognize how lucky we are to live in the desert, but still have a reliable source of water. We should also be thankful, however, that people like Clive Strong and others involved in the Swan Falls Agreement were able to take full advantage of the crisis over the management of water rights that emerged in the early 1980s. As the 1980s came to a close, the controversy over establishing permanent protection for the Snake River Birds of Prey Natural Area had almost completely fizzled away, as the debate over the Swan Falls Agreement made it clear that high water pumping was unrealistic on the plateau north of the canyon. Yet, the area still had not received permanent protection, and the clock was ticking. Cecil Andrus' administrative withdrawal would only last 20 years and 10 years had already gone by without any Congressional action to protect the area. The Snake River Birds of Prey area needed a champion in Congress, someone who is willing to stake their political career on the idea of permanently protecting this unique population of raptors. As the new decade began, that champion would emerge. Common Land is a production of the Wild Lens Collective and Radio Boise with support provided by the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey, NCA Partnership, the Peregrine Funds, Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. This episode was produced by Wayne Burt, Steve Alsip, and myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Production assistance was provided by Jessica Evett, Leah Dunn, and Ragged Coyote. Music is by Leica like Rocket, Ragged Coyote, The Great Turtle, and the Idaho Songs Project. Visit our website at commonlandpodcast.com to learn more about the show and to see a full list of credits.